Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. I see my dog. I hear a helicopter. That's contact. Contact involves a subject or an observer, me. It involves an object or what is observed, my dog or the helicopter. And it involves an awareness event of the object by the subject, seeing. Once contact arises, we tend to find the many objects of contact captivating, which is a problem because this gives rise in turn to feeling, craving, appropriation, and becoming. Simple enough, but what do we do about it? We try to understand that we presume too much. We will devote the remaining six links to exploring what this means. So we begin the second half of the links with this pivotal chapter on contact. This may throw the reader for a loop and give much material for contemplation, but that's a good thing. For contemplation is at the core of practice, and it needs just such material. We can take this material onto the cushion. We should spend time with this material. More generally, the world continually rolls by in our experience as two fundamentally separate tracks, actually as two worlds, but with some crosstalk between them, primarily through contact and action. The first world is the inner world in which largely mental events like hearing, seeing, lust, comfort, interest, attention, anger, reasoning, craving, intentions, plans, urges, ideas, awareness, bodily sensations, and so on arise and vanish. We tend to associate this tangled world of fleeting cognitive processes with the self and with me and with all of its needs and fears so difficult to comprehend or to limit, but also the primary focus of dependent co-arising. The second world is the outer world out there, where objects like trees and waterfalls, cars and airplanes, dogs and cats, bank accounts, yoga classes, other people, and so on, mostly physical things in time and space, exist with some degree of stability, orderly and negotiable. This world is substantial, grounded in reality, or so we presume. It's where the moon continues to exist even if we don't happen to be looking at it at the time. It's the realm of resources and dangers pertaining to the needs of the self. The two worlds are uh, worlds apart. Nevertheless, there is a crossover from one world to another. We direct our inner attention toward a place or thing out there, and our mouths subjectively begin to water, or direct it to another, and our hair stands on end. 
Likewise, we can make inner decisions to dig holes in the outer world or to pick its apples. Or some event in the outer world, like a virus, rainfall, or famine, might without warning create a disturbance in our inner world, even before we're aware of that thing in the outer world. Or sleepiness in here might lead inadvertently to a five-car pileup out there. Because the outer world is orderly, at least compared to the inner world, we can make sense of it to a significant degree and to manipulate it to our inner advantage, to exploit its resources and to protect ourselves from its dangers. The points at which inner awareness connects with outer awareness is contact, and the Pali word for contact is pasa, which also means touch. The Pali word for inner is ajata, which is derived from atta, self. The Pali word for outer is either bahida or bahira. If there is an object and awareness of that object in the outer world, there is presumably, this is the rub, a subject who experiences that object. Seeing and seen demand a seer. Doing and what is done demand a doer. The elemental self steps forth as experiencer and agent and is also the one ever seeking personal advantage, that is, who needs things out there and must be protected from things out there. This is a me in a kind of fortress world that both exploits and protects itself from the allures and hazards beyond the ramparts. Where there is offense, there is offense and defense. The self is perhaps the greatest kink in the samsaric tangle, the thorniest knot responsible for much suffering, and subject and object turn out to be at the heart of the soap operatic human life in which feeling, greed, aversion, appropriation, obsession, scheming, speculation, views, self-identity, in turn appear, and in which the perpetuation of samsaric existence unfolds. Caught in this duality, we find life to be a problem, full of neediness, aversion, and anguish. Insight into contact is central to the mission of dependent co-arising. Contact as the origin of feeling. For the, worldling con for the worldling, contact appears to be a direct relation between me and a thing out there. The world divides naturally into needs and wants on the inside and resources and dangers on the outside. Outside the walls of the fortress are the things to desire and exploit and things to fear and avoid inside the self to do the exploiting and avoiding. This duality entails an evaluation of objects beyond the walls in terms of attraction and aversion, which underlie the links of feeling, craving, and appropriation that follow. After contact with an object in the outer world, it's immediately evaluated in terms of self-interest. This is feeling. Feeling flags things for further cognitive processing, 
as mattering to the self. Feeling is therefore for the most part about the things of the outer world. Chocolate, snakes, twiddlebugs, poverty, clicks and likes, puppies, tornadoes, freedom from debt, sunsets, a good hug, a zombie movie, praise. Once we contact something, we can go on to feel it, to proliferate about it, to fear it, to crave it, to seek it, to plan around it, to appropriate it, to become it. It's instructive to track the actual rise of the elemental self, at least where it first asserts itself in this process. In uh, last week's talks, we considered the arising and conceptual proliferation in connection with feeling. The wording of the primary passage in which the Buddha describes this is revealing. Dependent on eye and appearance, eye cognizance arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future, and present mind objects cognizable through the mind. Notice that the passage begins with the impersonal arising of factors in sequence. Six spheres gives rise to contact. But after this point, introduce it as an agent, one, as the grammatical subject for what follows, what one feels, that one perceives, and so on, which remains for subsequent factors. Gives rise to feeling, gives rise to perception, gives rise to thought, gives rise to proliferation. What was the agent then becomes the grammatical object for the final factor, mental proliferation beset a man, expressing the agent's loss of control in the subjective world, gives rise to perceptions and notions. The conceptual basis for the elemental self arises at contact, but the self first asserts itself at feeling. In short, feelings are about the objects of contact, but aren't there feelings that arise entirely subjectively? like the bliss of jhana or virtue? Such curious feelings endure the complete cessation of contact with awakening, as in the bliss of nibbana. As discussed in earlier talks, feeling is an elusive thing, whereby, for instance, happiness can arise from the absence of feeling. The scourge of the natural attitude. Contact entails that there is a subject and an object. It also brings in a background of additional presumptions, almost a whole metaphysics, which is almost universally but naively taken for granted. I'll borrow the term natural attitude from phenomenology for this set of presumptions. The natural attitude underlies how we conceptualize and experience objects in a way that leads not only to feeling, craving, and appropriation, but also to wrong views. It creates problems. The following are the main points of the natural attitude. 
1. There exists a natural reality or nature out there that is independent of our experience of it. As I speak, it certainly appears that I am sitting right in the middle of such a natural reality. I'm facing a window. Outside it is daylight. There are trees outside. I can see the temple Dhammahal, a couple of cabins. It's a rainy day, many shades of brown, beige, green, red, and yellow. I know it extends beyond what I can presently see. For instance, if I stand up and walk out the door, and that it is still there if the monks get in the car and drive to a distant city. Moreover, there's no limit to the new things I can discover about natural reality. For instance, by overturning a rock and pulling out my magnifying glass, those things must be there before I experience them. The second point about the natural attitude, number two, is that awareness reliably reflects natural reality. Actually, we might not even notice that awareness is necessary. Natural reality seems to be just there, always available, if I just show up. An outer world is how natural reality appears to us in experience. Therefore, the natural attitude must include the presumption that the outer world reflects natural reality reasonably well. Let's explore briefly what this presumption entails. First, a little thought reveals for the still skeptical that whatever we experience must truly be cognitively constructed. Perhaps the easiest way to do this is through a little thought experience. To begin with, assume that cognition is something the brain does. The brain sits in the skull in total silence and darkness with neurons ablaze. Meanwhile, out in nature, my eye turns toward my coffee cup. A visual image appears in my retina as raw data optic nerves communicate that to my brain and somehow the brain is able to reconstruct what is going on where my eye has alighted and then report, that's a coffee cup. By golly, at best, there is a real cup beyond experience and a hopefully accurately cognitively reproduced cup, which is my experience of the cup within the outer world. The actual content produced by cognitive processes is a major theme of these talks. The fidelity with which the outer world might reflect natural reality would have to depend on rather remarkable capabilities of cognitive processes to reconstruct nature accurately. Unfortunately, we cannot assess this fidelity directly because experience cannot get behind natural reality to check it out, but only report how it appears from the front but we will discover many rather erratic and presumptuous subjective conditioning factors whose capabilities would suggest that what we experience misrepresents natural reality. The third aspect of the natural attitude is that natural reality consists primarily of objects. Objects exist in themselves, are substantial and discrete, 
They are relatively fixed, that is, they endure independent of one another and remain the same until they are affected by other objects, generally in predictable ways. This is certainly what the outer world looks like. I am surrounded by objects, the laptop on my desk, the microphone in front of me, a lamp, a coffee cup. I presume each will sit there unchanged if I leave the room and return later. The fourth aspect of the natural attitude is that there is a self as an object in natural reality able to interact with other objects, but at the same time the seat of inner experience. Checks out. I'm in space in three dimensions. I can reach out. I can pick up the coffee cup that is right there, empty its contents into my mouth, and enjoy the buzz. The natural attitude is determinant of the nature of contact. Unfortunately, it causes profound problems in presuming a world in which there are objects firmly grounded in nature beyond the chaos of the human mind that are fixed, reliable, and predictable, and in which there is a self also firmly grounded in nature for whom such objects are potential resources or dangers. We take things seriously and take on a stake in things. The allure of such objects leads to feeling, craving, and appropriation, and thereby to this whole mass of suffering. Whether the natural attitude holds up is questionable, but that is not so important. What we can say about the natural attitude is that it holds up for almost all of us for the outer world, the world in which we suffer and practice. Whether the natural attitude holds up is questionable, but that's not so important. What we can say about the natural attitude is that it is presumed in our experience in the world in which we suffer and practice. This is good news because the outer world is a product of cognition and cognition is very malleable. If I presume according to the natural attitude, I can learn to presume otherwise. Presuming otherwise is what we do in Buddhist practice if we're not learning to stop presuming altogether. The Buddha was not really a philosopher concerned with understanding natural reality. That is, that is not the world we live in. But he was concerned with the oft-neglected role of mind in producing what we presume is out there, and with the way many of our presumptions affect adversely our well-being and how we live our lives as we seek something fixed to hang on to. With this in mind, he reveals for us a world that is much less substantial and orderly than we generally presume, in which the objects that we otherwise crave and appropriate are unreliable, insubstantial, groundless, and void of anything we can reliably hang on to. He effectively pulls the rug out from under our feet taking us into a world in which things are insubstantial, unreliable, empty. The revelation of such a world is the primary theme of the six upstream links of dependent co-arising. 
We'll stop here for now. Next week, we'll explore some more ways that contact gets us into trouble and what we can do about it.